You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, if you didn't know this, here at King's Church, we have a bunch of attorneys and lawyers and law students and law student hopefuls. Uh, a few, I won't ask for hand raises because it's probably half of us, but uh, a few days ago, I went down a rabbit trail online with an article having to do with intellectual property or IP. This is really one of the only areas of law that's interesting to me. Intellectual property is basically if you come up with an idea you can patent it or trademark it or copyright it. So if you come up with the Adidas shoes or the logo, another company or another individual can't duplicate that and make money off of it. Or if you come up with Burger King, people can't steal the logo and try to make money off your restaurant. Now, it's more complicated than that for all you lawyers and attorneys and law students, so don't get all upset. But in this article that I went on a little bit of a rabbit trail on, it was describing how Disney has just lost their IP rights on a famous character. And that famous character is going to be up on the screen. It's none other than Winnie the Pooh. The character is now in something called the public domain, which means he's mostly up for grabs. Now, This is pretty horrifying, and it's also going to be up on the screen, but apparently the first project Winnie the Pooh is going to be in is an R-rated graphic horror film. The movie's called (laughs) Winnie... (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) I've had two hours of sleep. I hope I can get through this today. Um, The movie's called Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. I'm not kidding. I watched the the trailer the other day. It looks really gory and really, really weird. The premise is basically Christopher Robbins. He goes off to college, and he's neglected, and he's ignored Winnie and his friend Piglet. And so they become lonely. They become feral. They become bloodthirsty, crazy killers. I have no idea how anything like this could be made. It's being made in Britain, so maybe that's the reason. But... Uh, I know some of you sickos will probably go see this film. I mentioned all of this today. What's the point? Because we're looking at the famous story of Noah's Ark. And for many of us, we grew up thinking about Noah's Ark like Winnie the Pooh. Let's get my mic working. It's a cute little story about animals. But when we really dive in, when we really dig into this story... It's pretty gruesome. It's a story about the intense corruption and the violence of humanity, perversion, evil. It's a story about the heartbreak of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God. This is a dark story. But what we'll see this morning is that even in all the darkness, God's light, God's grace is going to shine through. We'll see the God of grace who never forgets Noah. We'll see the God of all grace who's giving the world a second chance through his mercy, through his kindness. And we'll be reminded this morning that the God of grace has never forgotten us. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's filled with mercy. And he offers us a second chance 
through that mercy, a mercy that is through none other than Jesus Christ. Now, the main idea is going to follow that truth, and it will also be up on the screen, and it's this. Salvation is in Jesus Christ. Salvation is in Jesus Christ. That is, the story of Noah ultimately points us to our greater need for a greater Savior than just an ark. The ark is going to show us how salvation can come through judgment, but we realize we need a greater Savior, a greater salvation. And that Savior is none other than Jesus Christ. Now, that line's also going to be up on the screen. It's pretty straightforward. It's going to follow the text, and it's this. The corruption of man, number one. The grief of God, Genesis 6. The grace of God, Genesis 6 through 8. And the salvation of man. Now, if you haven't been here uh, for the last few weeks or you're just checking us out, we've recently, about six weeks ago, started a series in the book of Genesis. In Genesis, we meet the God of power. He's not breaking a sweat to create the universe. The picture in the opening pages of Genesis is he's just talking. And things are coming into being. Out of nothing, there's now something. Space, time, matter, fish, the birds, the bees, the sun, the moon, the animals. But then God says he's going to do something really special. And so he makes man and he makes woman. And he makes them in his image, which means they represent him and they reflect him. Now, God loves them, we read. He is with them in the cool of day. He walks with them. His presence is at peace with them and they're at peace with him. But then, as we saw a few weeks ago, things start to go south really, really fast. Words matter and the serpent, his lies poison their hearts. The serpent says, you can't trust God. If you believe in God, he's going to hold you back. If you trust him, if you follow him, he's going to make you naive. He's going to limit you. And you are God. That is, you are everything. The universe revolves around you. You are God's equal. They buy these lies, they bite. And what we find is that the image in them gets fractured. Shame and guilt and fear fill their hearts. And this heart, once the good human heart, now becomes the compromised heart, the fallen heart, a sinful heart, a heart that struggles to do transparency and vulnerability, a heart that struggles to trust God. Time goes on, and what we'll see this morning is that things aren't going to get much better. The sin virus isn't going to go away. There's no two weeks to slow the spread. This thing is potent. It's not stopping. First, we saw last week that Cain kills Abel. And now people everywhere on the face of the earth are going to give into their worst inclinations of their hearts, which really leads us to our first point this morning, the corruption of man. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11 and 12 adds, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh 
had corrupted their way on the earth. So the picture here is that God looks on the earth and he sees mass corruption. He sees mass violence. This is not a good time to be a human. If you're ever asked in an icebreaker question, what era would you want to live in? This is certainly not the era that you would want to live in. The strong are beating down the weak. Power is being used in unfair ways. There's illicit sex everywhere. The sons of God, we read in verse 1, are sleeping with the daughters of man. Now, history ebbs and flows, and this is certainly a low point in the history of humanity. This is Germany in 1943. This is the Dark Ages on steroids. Now, before we get comfortable and say, that's them, but today this is us, consider the trial of Lieutenant Colonel Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was a Nazi SS officer, and he was one of the major organizers of what was called the Final Solution. When he was captured and he was tried and eventually executed in Jerusalem, there's a famous moment in his trial where a death camp survivor named Yehiel Diner comes in. And it's a, it's a dramatic sight. It was one of the first televised trials. He comes in and he falls down and he starts crying. And later on, he's interviewed. And the interviewer asks him, why did you collapse? Was it hatred? Was it fear? And notice what Yehiel says. He says, no, no, no. Here's what overwhelmed me. I came in, I looked at Eichmann, and I realized this is not a demon. This is not a superman. This is someone just like me. And if he's capable of doing this, so am I. He said Eichmann essentially is in all of us. He was facing himself. And that's one of the things we see here in Genesis 6. We may not be as evil as the people here in Genesis chapter 6, or as evil as Eichmann, but we all have it in us. We all have fallen hearts. We all have compromised hearts. We all have sinful hearts. And passages like this should make us ask, have you ever faced yourself? Do you know what is in your heart? Do you know what you are capable of? Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, describes our human nature as being curved in on itself. He says our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it is wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeking to use all things, even God, for its own sake. The point he's trying to get across is that self-centeredness is the essence of our fallen nature. We naturally put ourselves at the center of it all, don't we? We naturally make ourselves the authority of our own lives. We are the captain of our soul, the master of our fate. And we're constantly bent towards trying to get everything to orbit around our glory, our acclaim, our achievement. Luther says it's so deep that even the things we do, the religious things we do, are attempts to put ourselves at the center. It's all about us. Have you ever faced yourself? Do you know what is in your heart? Do you know what you are capable of? Because here in this passage, in this first point, we see that that which is inside of us all is aggravated 
it's amplified in major ways, so much so that God is about to hit control, alt, delete. He's about to reboot the system. Things are so bad, which really leads us to the second point, the grief of God, verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the picture here is that God has looked upon the earth, and he sees the ugliness of where the earth is at. It's necessary to judge the world, but there is a problem. The problem is his compassion, his love. God isn't just a God of truth who smites people. He's also the God of love, of compassion, of mercy, of kindness. And that compassion and love causes him to deeply grieve the situation, to suffer in it here. Now, a lot of people have problems with the wrath or the divine vengeance of God. Some of you are repulsed at this idea. It's hard to process. It's disturbing. Like if you ask people, do you believe in God? Most people are going to raise their hand and say yes. But if you ask a lot of those same people, do you believe in the God who floods the world in judgment here in Genesis chapter 6? Not as many hands are going to go up. But notice here, God can relate if you're in that camp this morning. He's much more repulsed and he's much more distressed about it than you or I will ever be. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the divine judge. He's evaluating. He looks down and he sees, and nobody passes. So what would you expect the next verse to say? Verse 6, it's not what we get. What does God do when he sees what has to be done? What is his response? Verse 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. In other words, his heart is filled with pain. He's deeply upset. He experiences grief, real pain, in his heart, which means bitter anguish, sorrow. We might ask ourselves, but why? Why does he feel this? Well, because as we read the pages of the Bible, because on the one hand, God has himself voluntarily bound his heart and his life up with us. He didn't have to, but God, the creator of it all, has knit his heart to ours. So much so, when he sees something go wrong in our lives, it grieves him. It pains him. It causes him deep sorrow. But on the other hand, notice it's necessary. God looks out in the world and he thinks human beings were made to image me, to reflect my kindness, my love, my wisdom, my artistry, my engineering. They're mirrors. And if they reflect me, they'll represent me over the whole face of the world and life will thrive. But then he sees the opposite is happening, doesn't he? His beautiful creation has turned to rot. Human beings who were meant to reflect him, to image him, to represent him have turned inward. His glory is being mocked. And as a result, the world is a selfish, inhospitable wasteland as he's looking out in Genesis 6. It's filled with corruption and violence. It's all gone wrong. And so he grieves. 
But then in his perfect righteousness, his perfect holiness, his perfect wisdom, he says it's time to reboot. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, the good news of the gospel as we consider the character of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God, is that the story doesn't end there. And the next verse really leads us to our third point this morning, the grace of God. Verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So the world is a mess. The worst parts of human nature are being amplified over and over. It's a selfless, godless wasteland. This isn't the world you or I would want to be in. But then there's this guy, and he's different from everybody else. Notice he's found favor in the eyes of the Lord, verse 8. That means he's found grace. He's found God's good pleasure, God's mercy, God's salvation. He didn't earn it. He found it. He didn't achieve it. He received it. He was a righteous man, blameless, because he walked with God, verse 9. The idea there is that he trusted in God. He believed God. And as a result, God puts his love, his protection, his mercy on Noah because Noah listens to God. He trusts him by faith. And that trust causes him to live his life differently. Now, this is going to be important because, as we know, the floodwaters are coming. He tells Noah in verse 14, make yourself an ark or a boat. He tells him to get in the boat with his three sons, their wives, and his wife. And he says, bring two, as we know the story, bring two of every animal. And then chapter 7, verse 11, the rain. All the fountains of the deep, the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 21, all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Verse 23, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But then chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. In other words, judgment was coming and it came. But Noah found grace. God saved Noah. He put his love, his protection, his mercy on Noah because Noah listened to God. He took him at his word. He trusted him by faith. And that trust caused him to live his life differently. Now, the same is true for us this morning. In a very real way, we will all face the creator and judge someday. The New Testament says it is appointed for us to live once and then the judgment. We will give an account to God. There is final and ultimate accountability in this universe. But Noah's life reminds us that salvation is always by grace through faith. It always has been 
and it always will be. Noah's not perfect, but he's called righteous because he believes in God. He trusts the Lord. He didn't understand how it all worked, but he trusted in God. And today, the offer of Jesus Christ is essentially the same exact thing. If you want to be right with God this morning, the scandal of the gospel is that all you need is need. All you need is nothing. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ himself has achieved everything we need to be right with God. And on the cross, Jesus has received everything we deserve in order for God's perfect, righteous judgment to be satisfied. All that's left is to trust God, to believe in him, to receive him as your own. He's the ark that saves us, the door that protects us. He's the one that drinks the full cup of the wrath and justice of God. And if you trust him today, if you throw yourself at his feet, he will give you his spirit, he'll make you new, and he'll change your life. Now the story doesn't end there. We notice that after the flood waters subside, Noah and his crew finally get off the boat, which really leads us to our final point this morning, the salvation of man. Verse 15, God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. God tells him, be fruitful and multiply, protect human life, care for the world, and so on. In a sense, it is a reboot of creation. God stepped in, he's judged, he's pushed back evil in a real way, in a very wild way. He's judged the corruption and the violence on the earth. And because he has, he's saved the world. He's given the human race a second chance. It's the idea of salvation through judgment. The judgment has cleansed the earth. It saved the earth. But the question is, how well did this reboot do? And as we read the pages of the Bible, the answer is not so well. If you read the rest of the story, you'll see that after Noah gets off the ark, he basically screws up badly. He gets very drunk, he passes out naked, and we're supposed to say, is this, as we read the pages of the Bible, is this really the leader of the new creation? Is this really a successful reboot? Now, the problem, of course, is that there was something else in that boat other than the animals. And that something else is the fractured image, the self-centered nature, the compromised heart, the fallen heart, the sinful heart, the heart that struggles to do transparency, the heart that struggles with faith in God and wrath and judgment and water can't solve that problem. And God knows that. So he makes a promise. Verse 21, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Notice he basically says, I know the human heart is still corrupted, so I won't destroy the earth again. I'll have to pursue a different solution. He says, destroying won't work. 
It won't rid future generations of evil because the problem is at the heart. And so what we find here at the end of this story is that God in this story is pointing us to the need for a completely new kind of salvation. The clue is in chapter 9, verse 13, where he says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, the Hebrew word here for bow is not rainbow. It's a war bow or a battle bow. Now, a rainbow, of course, is shaped like a bow, yes. But what God is saying here is that he's laid down his war bow in the heavens. In other words, God is showing us that ultimate salvation isn't going to come through him shooting his arrows of wrath into the world. Ultimate salvation where he heals our hearts, where he restores the image within us, isn't going to come through floodwaters. Instead, it's going to come by God doing something so much more drastic. Of course, it follows the pattern of salvation judgment through salvation, but it's going to come by God himself taking the justice and wrath that we deserve on, him, on his very self. And in Jesus Christ, we have that this morning. Jesus Christ who goes to the cross is where God's justice and God's mercy meet perfectly in one moment in human history. On the cross, a perfect judgment leads to a perfect and complete salvation. It cleanses and it can save. And in his resurrection from the dead, he appears just like Noah, victorious from the storms of God's judgment. But unlike Noah, he begins for real a new creation, one where his very spirit can come into our lives and change us, where it can change our nature, it can transform our being, where it can make us new, where it can give us a relationship with God, where he can take the heart of stone and make it brand new. Jesus is better in every way. And Noah's story teaches us that salvation comes through judgment. But as we look to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, we see a greater salvation. One who has given him his very self for us, to change us, to save us, to restore us in all of our ways. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.